And it's, I know that people always say this, but this is like seriously a work in progress, like it doesn't actually have an ending, so it'll kind of peter out towards the end. But that's, that, then that will, um, I'm sure you will help me think about how to, how to move on with it. The smoke from the fires in British Columbia and Alberta obscure our views out over the valley. Each day we all grimace to each other as we gesture out the windows of Vista's cafeteria. The grass is dead, the forests are pale and yellow-tinged. The view is not of the usual snow-capped mountains from which the snow melted weeks ago. No, when we peer through the hazy, orange-tinged, thick air, we can't even see the edge of the Banff Center, which is the Banff Center for Arts and Creativity. Um, in Banff, Alberta, of the Banff Center campus. So, um, so that's what it normally looks like. It's kind of a blurry picture, um, but this is what it looked like most of the time that we were there this summer. So I'll just do that one more time because it's kind of cool. Um, normal, new normal. And um, I just threw in a picture um, a couple of pictures that I took in Beijing in 2014 because this is what the smoke in Alberta was reminding me of a lot. I happened to be in Beijing when it hit its like highest uh, air pollution and it was really oppressive and awful to, to even walk around and try to breathe there. So. Okay, so we can't even see the edge of the Banff Center campus. I'm scared. Not because I think it will force us to evacuate and jettison the five-week Banff Research and Culture residency program that my partner and I organized. I don't fear for my own personal safety, nor do I think that it will impinge upon my daily life in tangible ways. It's more nebulous than that, the smoke and its threat. It smacks of so many post-apocalypse films, a fact that many of us repeat to each other as we describe seeing the sun as an orange ball clearly defined by the thick haze that hit its rays. The smoke is sharp in our nostrils and catches at the back of our throats, making our eyes water, so we look and feel for the life of us as if we're crying. We're not crying, though. At least I don't think we are. We're all a little excited by the smoke. It's a new version of chatting to acquaintances about the weather one that breeds more intimacy as we encounter the effects of this disaster. We can code our politics if we say knowingly, well, of course, the forests are dry because of climate change. The predictions for the future imagined by science fiction, or what is now called climate fiction, seem to be abutting our lived present. This is what it's going to be like more and more as the world gets hotter, we say. A little pang of fear and of excitement tightens our chests, already gasping for breath in the contaminated air. The thing is, our first, and I just put up some, I, I, I think these are amazing pictures, um, so I just put them up. Um, I couldn't stop trying to capture it. The thing is, our first instinct is to like the smell. For some, it recalls backpacking adventures and campfires. For others, the camaraderie of bonfires. For me, my Proustian Madeleine moment happens with the first pungent whiff. I am taken back to the Catalan mountains of my childhood summers, where our view from the top floor of the old farmhouse sometimes contained plumes of smoke and helicopters filled with Mediterranean seawater to douse the flames. This year, by the way, the fires in Europe are triple their usual um, at this time, and they have not yet abated. Fires weren't just in the neighboring mountains, they were also in the back of the house where the gardener would burn all our trash once a week, never separating cardboard from plastics, from leaves and clippings. 
We children loved the smell of the black smoke, little knowing the toxic fumes it contained. One afternoon, when the adult gossip was going on too long, my cousin and I asked to be excused from the dining room. The six big sheepdogs roiled around us as we stepped out onto the patio. My cousin gasped and pointed in the direction of the chicken coop. We ran closer and saw thick smoke coming from the grass on the other side of the wall. Incendio, incendio, we called out, and the adults, groggy from overeating and wine, came running down. There in the midst of the burning fire was Jauma, the gardener, lurching and veering and muttering as he batted ineffectually at the flames with a cloth. A bottle of his homemade hooch lay next to him. My grandmother started yelling at him in Catalan, calling him a stupid drunk, and he grinned toothlessly at her, wagging his finger. Jauma, weaving and taking slugs from his bottle as we tried to douse the flames, began to lecture my grandmother. Liberté, égalité, fraternité, he intoned in French. And then, so he's going, liberté, égalité, fraternité, he and then in Catalan said, and, and, I can't remember the fourth one. <laughs> but the French were right, senora, I shit on the aristocrats, I shit on the oligarchs. We shoved him out of the way of the fire as he kept holding up his fingers and counting the tenets of the French Revolution, that fourth finger always seeking to find the missing term. The thing is, much as we laughed at his delusional rant, I too am looking for that fourth principle. Liberty, equality, and fraternity did a lot to abolish feudalism, landed privilege, and inequality under law for some people. And those terms continue to function as the basic rules of what it means to be an, an individual in our society, even though we've changed them to reflect our contemporary needs. Instead of liberty, for example, which has been encroached on through increased incarceration, securitization, surveillance, militarization, and state racism, we sometimes get caught up in demands for an individual's freedom of choice. Amitav Ghosh says that since the Enlightenment, Freedom from the constraints of nature has been seen as one of the defining characteristics of freedom. About the 20th century, he says, freedom came to be seen as a way of transcending the constraints of material life, of exploring new regions of the human mind, spirit, emotion, consciousness, interiority. Freedom became a quantity that resided entirely in the minds, bodies, and desires of human beings. The other terms um, that Jama was holding up. So for uh, so we did liberty. Okay, equality. We mistake entrepreneurship for equality, so that getting to compete in the economic system is seen as a privilege and a right. And we reject fraternity as sexist, and instead call for intersectionality, which takes into account the ways in which different forms of oppression, racism, ableism, transphobia, ethnocentrism, for example, are connected. None of the French Revolution's terms are, I wager, going to help us collectively do something as the fires rage, the hurricanes devastate, the droughts parch, and the atmosphere heats up. These climate events, increasing more than scientists had predicted they would, demand from us a united response that transcends our liberal ideas of selfhood and individuality. So in what follows, I depict some scenes of my summer in the smoke in order to work towards an argument for what I see as our only possible fourth term. So this is a residency program that uh, we run every year, and the year, the theme this year was the year 2067, so the, the theme is the year 2067, and we chose it to coincide with Canada's 150th anniversary. 
successful applicants to the residency proposed artistic and research projects. So we mix visual artists and researchers um, uh, that had to do with the environment, politics, critical discourse, and collectivity. My partner and I gave a talk in the first week that framed our preoccupations and hopes for the ensuing weeks of dialogue and, and engagement. So I'm gonna just read to you from one short section that I wrote um, about the point of tension around which much of my thinking about individual, individualism and collectivity pivots. So my work entails, so this is from the paper, kind of. Um, my work entails a critique of the individualism that threatens to split the left. I believe that neoliberal ideology is insidiously replicated in what figures as a version of what some people pejoratively call contemporary identity politics, so that a discourse of entrepreneurial empowerment and self-assertion replaces what I would call the real work of politics, solidarity, collective action, and even self-sacrifice for the sake of a larger goal. And yet, and yet, I am also aware of myself as someone who inhabits the neoliberal model of self-assertion and self-care. And here you might think of um, a line from Jody Dean's chapter that I assigned for your reading. The do-it-yourself injunction is so unceasing that taking care of oneself appears as politically significant instead of as a, system, uh, as a symptom of collective failure. So it's one of the places that she's talking about that we believe that we need to care for ourselves as opposed to thinking of our culture as one of interconnectedness and interdependence. I don't know how to square the circle. So this, the square the circle between wanting collectivity and also kind of asserting myself all the time and kind of self-betterment. Wendy Brown in her book, Undoing the Demos, so, accurate, so acutely points out that an academic's labor may seem intellectual and concept-driven, but we are not outside the market that turns our teaching and research into capital. When I write, though, I believe in the importance and power of my own voice, my expression of ideas. I even tell myself that this solitary activity makes me a better comrade, because the things they teach me about, my, about ideas um, is knowledge that I can share with wider publics who read me or are taught by me. But how much am I soaked in an ideology of individualism that makes it impossible for me to be truly part of the collective? I'm only aware of this in myself because of the critique that I level at certain discourses of feminism today. For the past two years, I taught a course on feminism in which some of the discussions got, it seemed to me, into uncomfortable and unproductive discussions about someone being unaware of their racism or not checking their privilege. What frustrated me in these classes was that I felt like we kept talking about the same thing. Most of us white, finger pointing at others who hadn't learned yet what they needed to know to be aware, to be woke. To be woke, I just couldn't believe that there's actually an emoji of this, um, so I had to put it up. That's, that's my emoji, by the way. Um, I don't know if you think it looks like me. Um, to be woke is, in the best case, to be aware of one's own privilege to be awake to the systemic racism and sexism that shapes our society. It has to do with what feminists call situated knowledge, in which we take pains to state our race, class, sexual orientation, ethnicity, and social privilege, thus demonstrating an awareness of the power structures that shape our actions and ideas. Take, for example, um, this, um, this quote from Erin Wunker's book, Notes from a Feminist Killjoy. After identifying herself as a cisgendered white middle-class mother and partner, she says to her reader, 
you may have a very different experience than mine, and that matters immensely, but I can only speak with authority for myself. This, to me, feels like a problem. I feel like we're not going to get anywhere if we speak with authority only for ourselves. A theorist's insistence on her agency and self-awareness makes little difference in the broad-scale systemic change necessitated in order to combat injustice, poverty, and climate change. As we saw from the fallout of the last US elections, the left is splintering itself. Think, for instance, of the Twitter wars about the Women's March. So much critique was leveled at what marchers understood or didn't about feminism, who was excluded, and who was privileged. Much of what was said was important and true, I'm not saying it's not, yet it ran the risk of what, and I, here I agree with Jody Dean, what she calls the proliferation of issues and identities that disperses and weakens us, inciting the snark that glorifies itself as critique even as it undermines solidarity. In my feminist classroom, there was shaming. There was self-blame, women saying they were embarrassed at their ignorance of their own racism. Partly, I think this is a really important moment of politicization, to realize the structures of oppression and domination that shape our societies and psyches. And yet, I felt in my classroom like we would go nowhere, that to name an identity was equated with being political, but that the politics were implied rather than articulated. So that's just a portion of the paper that I gave. So now I'm going back to Banff um, being there. A couple of days after this talk that we gave, uh, my partner and I went for a hike to Sunshine Meadows. As we descended in the gondola, I smelled smoke and saw some wisps arriving from the direction of Mount Assiniboine. So that's from the gondola. It felt very unreal, like perhaps I was just imagining it. By the time we got to the bottom 15 minutes later, it was very clear that a fire was blazing somewhere past the path that we had not taken. <coughs> Two days later, all of Sunshine Meadows was closed and the BAM Center was enshrouded in a thick haze. For someone who lives in Ontario, the Rockies feel so untouched and remote. When you hike into them, you always have in the back of your mind that people die in them, that it's dif difficult to be rescued, that bears or mountain lions kill people every year. These mountains, however, are not the other to humans. Their flora, fauna, temperatures, snow, trees, and glaciers are completely inextricable from our actions. So I'm just going to give you a couple of bleak examples, and I, I have to say I cut out about 10. Um, I just like got into this thing for like a week where I couldn't stop reading awful um, statistics. So the World Wildlife Fund Canada just released the Living Planet Report. Um, I don't know if you've seen it. And um, it's, it's worse than anyone thought. Um, so Canada is home to a quarter of the Earth's wetlands, 8,500 rivers, and more than 2 million freshwater lakes. During the past four decades, just four decades, human activity, whether industrial development, farming, forestry, or the expansion of urban areas, as well as climate change, pollution, and overfishing, have, shrink, have helped shrink the population of 451 species representing half of the 903 monitored species in the country. And so this is a breakdown of, um, of the declines in the different populations. I don't know why I have this. I think my next slide is messed up. For four of the five weeks that we are in residence, most of the days are smoky. It's strange to never see the fires themselves. I'm totally out of order. So wait, I'm just gonna, oh no, I'm good, I'm good. Okay. Um, 
It's strange to never see the fires themselves. This is the closest we got to them driving through Rogers Pass, and it's a really short video, so um, I'll show it twice because it's hard to even see what's happening. But there are a bunch of helicopters. Um, I'll just do it one more time. Because <laughs> when you kind of get it, it's, um, oops, it's actually pretty startling. Um, so you can see like all the fires raging. Those are all like separate little fires um, along the pass. And it went on like that um, for, for quite a while. Sorry, I'm not the best photographer. Um, so there's a picture of what it was like to drive uh, that day. So to not see the fires themselves makes the forest fire into what Timothy Martin calls a hyper object. It's like this thing that we know is there, but we don't quite understand where it is or, or what it is. Um, on that day driving through Rogers Pass, I read uh, the chilling article from New York Magazine by David Wallace Wells that a lot of people were talking about this summer. Um, and this is just a, a quotation from him. He says, each year 339,000 people die from wildfire smoke in part because climate change has extended forest fire season. In the U.S., it's increased by 78 days since 1970. By 2050, according to the U.S. Forest Service, wildfires will be twice as destructive as they are today. In some places, the area burned could grow fivefold. Almost 2,116,000 square kilometers of intact forests in Canada have been disturbed or fragmented since 2000. And over 80% of wetlands have been converted to other uses in and around cities. And this is all data that I take from the Living Planet Report. This causes not only devastation of wildlife habitat, but also increased pollution, since trees obviously clean the atmosphere of CO2 and increase oxygen. There's also the problem of forest management, which in recent years has succumbed to the pressures of the lumber industry. So historically, fires burn frequently and at a low intensity reducing what firefighters refer to as fuel, so the shrubs and low-lying branches uh, and young trees. These forest fires are no longer a natural occurrence that reaffirms the forest life cycles. So in an article in, in uh, Maison Neuve, uh, Sarah J. Riley says, if we were purely interested in ecology, we might let more fires burn, allowing smaller fires to sift through stands of forest and call the more fire-prone trees. But two-thirds of Canada's forests are actively managed by private companies, much of them for timber. For instance, Weyerhaeuser, an American timber company with large stakes in Canadian forests, net $7 billion in 2015. So they're deeply invested in not burning up their valuable assets. <clears throat> what do I have next? Oh, this is a panorama shot of the smoke coming in over the BAM Center. So you see the blue sky on one side. In week three, the political theorist Jody Dean, who I had you read, came and spent her time a week there, insisting unequivocally that the Communist Party is the only political option. Politics, she argued, is the intensity of the friend-enemy distinction. Against contemporary capitalism's claim that everyone and everything is connected, she argued that we need divisiveness, that we need to assert that certain ideas and practices are wrong and fight for what we think is right. During a break in one of her seminars, I went to talk to her. Don't you get into trouble with this? Because I was thinking about my, my class, and um, yeah, like uh, I just think that it's very hard to speak against um, certain identity um, ideas or politics and identity. She said that she didn't really see it as a problem, that people need to understand um, that, they, that mobilization and party membership are both um, necessary. 
I admired her commitment, yet I couldn't have her wholehearted belief. Nor could I, as an educator, be okay with how much it doesn't meet the needs of people looking for a group that seems like it will include them. The participants disliked her work. They argued it was not intersectional, that it was outdated and white. I heard what they were saying and thought that perhaps she should have been more aware of the demands made by students who positioned themselves as, as activists. Yet I couldn't figure out what they wanted. I knew what they criticized, I just didn't know what they proposed. This is the feeling that I've been having more and more. The hurricanes that have ravaged, ravaged the Caribbean have not dampened the smoke that has infiltrated more than my lungs. In the face of these catastrophes, I've become more and more certain that the fourth term, the term that takes us out of enlightenment ideas of individuality and morality, is solidarity. I don't know if Jama would go for it or if he would shit on me and everything I represent in his mind. But as Judith Butler speculates, isn't that the work of making solidarity? So this is what she said in an interview. So how do we think about these loose alliances that are most emphatically not based on love or even identification? My sense is that we have too often presumed that we must identify with those with whom we ally. But if we insist on identification in this way, we tend to reproduce communitarian politics, allying only with those who are already similar to us, and refusing to confront those whose views and whose lives may well seem quite different. My political sense is that an expanding coalition has to be one in which we presume that we are not the same. This is as important for producing a multiracial and cross-generational alliance as it is for bringing in people who have been depoliticized for a long time or whose politics have in many ways differed from one's own. In trying to figure out what to do, I read and reread Amitav Ghosh's book, The Great Derangement, which I asked you to read a chapter of and his critique of what is understood as the political today. Instead, he says, of being about the common wheel or the making of collective decisions, he says it has become a search for personal authenticity, a journey of self-discovery. He argues against climate change as a moral issue, which turns it into an individual responsibility and choice as opposed to a collective problem. We all feel isolated in terms of making a change. We feel the burden as individuals, so there is a lot of guilt, for instance, in driving somewhere and turning on your AC. But if we really understand how small um, the, our actions are compared to the actions of corporations, for instance, it seems really negligible. So feeling this burden as individuals is what functions in our understanding of liberty and equality. Trapped in what Ghosh calls an individualizing imaginary, we remain within, and this is, I, I'm interested to hear what you all have to say about what he said. Um, we remain within the dominant discourse of ethics. So he mentioned brawls here. And he said that the dominant discourse of ethics in, um, in North America um, is based on assumptions of individual rationality that are borrowed from neoclassical economics. So, I say that I believe in solidarity and that I understand that it has to be an uneasy alliance between people with whom we don't necessarily identify. But look at who I'm talking to. I think I might be preaching to the converted. Interesting that this is a religious metaphor. It makes me think uncomfortably of Jim Jones, a Marxist and civil rights activist who preached a religion he didn't believe so as to bring disempowered people together. Yes, it has become a commonplace in our culture to say don't drink the Kool-Aid which means don't blindly adhere to a group and comes from the mass deaths, mass deaths of the people of Jonestown. 
but it may be worth asking why we fear adherence to a group, why our culture insists so much on the sacrosanct individual who mustn't give herself over to an idea or a collective. Jones seemed to understand that religion brings people together and makes them willing to sacrifice individual freedoms for collective action. We secular thinkers are pretty scared of religion, which is why Gosha's challenge is so surprising. He says, if religious groupings around the world can join hands with popular movements, they may well be able to provide the momentum that is needed for the world to move forward on drastically reducing emissions without sacrificing considerations of equity. Religion may be a way to mobilize people to come together against climate change. That is bigger than governments, than nation states, than interest groups. But it necessitates belief in something bigger than you as an individual. And I think many of us are unwilling to give ourselves to institutions that have inflicted so much suffering historically. So I'll end with a call to what I said the last time I was here when I spoke about ethics and literature. Um, when I was in Banff, there was a, another residency going on at the same time, which was called Environmental Reportage, uh, that Naomi Klein was running. And um, I went to the work in progress of the writers there, and it was the work that most made me take seriously the non-human world around me. So this isn't to say that I didn't think the visual artists were doing a good job, but somehow, like, these... Um, long-form pieces that these authors were working on really hit me in the gut. Um, they, they were moving and chilling reports on, for instance, the beetle bug infestation in the forest, um, to another one on red tides, which is when like basically all marine life um, dies because of um, some pollution event. Um, another one was on the increased deaths of grizzly bears in um, Banff. So these are all journalists who are coming to work on, on longer pieces of work. These have stayed with me, these stories, and they complicate my sense of what I take as givens, which is the relationship of humans to nature. So I, I'm inspired by what Ghosh says at the end of his, um, his whole book, where he says that maybe, um, he says, looking back, after a climate catastrophe has happened, maybe people will blame not only the politicians, but also the artists and writers who didn't look to what was happening and didn't write about what was happening. So I think that maybe the task of literature now is to really engage with um, what's going on around us in ways that are larger than just the human. So that's all.